Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Great to have you. We are starting our way through the book of Genesis here in Crosswinds Church. And we are today we are in Genesis chapter 28. This is going to be a great study. Led Zeppelin's written songs about this chapter. Uh, U2 has written songs about this chapter. So when uh, Led Zeppelin and U2 are writing songs about a chapter in Genesis, you know it's going to be good. So, uh, by the way, I'm not endorsing their songs in the, at all. Just want you to know that. Just wanted to give you a heads up on that. Um, but some, a number of you are new, by the way. And what I want to just do, before we actually jump into the text, and since there's a number of you that have come back from Arizona and warm places, and I'm jealous of you, uh, I just want to get everybody on the same page. Let me just briefly do an on-ramp here for Genesis before we jump into chapter 28. Um, Genesis is a big book. It's a huge book. And in the beginning of Genesis, it really talked about big picture ideas. It talked about, for the first 12 chapters, things like creation, where did we come from, sin, what went wrong with the world, uh, the table of nations, and how all the different languages ended up on planet Earth. And one of the big events, as you come to right before chapter 12, is the world has fallen into such chaos and depravity and sin is so dominant that God just finally hits the reset switch, you know, like you do on your computers, and reboots the whole place with a flood, wipes everybody out, gets a completely fresh start, and redoes it with Noah and his family. But it doesn't take long, and things start spiraling out of control all over again. Sin is rearing its ugly head. So God changes, and from chapter 12, it was, was talking about big picture issues, but all of a sudden in chapter 12, the book zooms into one person and one family as God starts his plan to redeem and redeem us and to fix this problem of sin. And what he does, God starts to work with one man, a pagan Babylonian called Abraham. I mean, this guy is a rough piece of raw material to work with. He really is. And a number of times, he doesn't wear his wedding ring in public. He claims that his sister is his wife. And, you know, really not what you call like your, your perfect guy to start with. Eventually, he has a son named Isaac. Isaac is not much better than dad, follows in his father's footsteps, also does not wear his wedding ring in public, also claims that his wife is actually his sister. Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, started with a decent marriage, but quickly that went down the tubes, as we learned last week. Eventually, after 20 years of infertility, she had twin boys. And last week, we were looking at the fact that in their marriage between Isaac and Rebecca, I mean, these guys are completely dysfunctional. They have terrible communication skills. Isaac, he lies and manipulates behind his wife's back. Rebecca, she manipulates and tells half-truths and lies behind her husband's back. I mean, you cannot trust this lady. Eventually, um, they have these kids, Jacob and Esau. And dad plays favorites with Esau. Mom plays favorites with Rebecca, which, by the way, if your parents don't play favorites with your kids, it does not go over well. 
Dad favors Esau because um, Esau is a good cook and a good hunter. Jacob, or Rebekah favors Jacob in sort of that overdone, repulsive way. What you have is you have a rich family, because that's what Isaac and Rebekah are, a rich couple, but they're an extremely dysfunctional couple. It's one of those houses where the cops always get called for, family, for domestic violence. You know that stuff you see it on TV all the time? That's what it's like in Isaac and Rebekah's home. They have a lot of cash, but they're really dysfunctional. Last week, we were looking at the battle for the blessing. Esau was the older son. He was the one who was supposed to get the blessing by right of being born first. But God had given a prophecy even before they were born that the older son would actually serve the younger son and things would switch around. Now, interestingly, neither Esau nor Jacob deserved to be the next patriarch. Both of them were extremely dysfunctional. Remember Esau? Esau's first problem was excessive hair growth. It's true. The guy looked like a, a Wookiee. And he not, he not only looked like an animal, but he lived like an animal. There was only three things in the world that he was concerned about. Hunting, eating, and girls. It's true. All he wanted was the three F's. Fun, food, and females. He's not like the best piece of raw material to make the Nets patriarch. So you think maybe his younger brother was a little bit better. Maybe that's the reason God chose Jacob, because he's better than Esau. But actually, as we discovered last week, Jacob is no better than Esau. And Jacob is maybe even worse than Esau. Jacob, the younger brother, is a trickster. He's a manipulator. He is a player. The only time he really does well in life is when he goes to the casino. And he does well there because he's skilled at ripping people off. That's his gifted area. I mean, he rips off his brother twice. Steals from his blind father once. I mean, when those are your career highlights on your resume, I rip off people really bad, especially my own parents and family, those are not the highlights you really want. Jacob sounds like a guy who should be spending more time behind bars, like steel bars, not leading God's people. In fact, his name in Hebrew, Jacob, becomes synonymous with Cheating. When your name is synonymous with cheating, like that is a really bad reputation to have following you around. I don't know if you realize it, but Jacob was still single at age 50. The only woman who loved him was his own mother. I mean, you could be a convicted felon serving time in jail and your mother will still love you. Jacob doesn't have anybody else who likes him besides mom. So this is not that impressive. But here's the interesting part. God chose, God elected Jacob to be the one that he would work through, to be the one that he would transform, to be the one who would be the next patriarch. And to me, I find that incredibly comforting. If God can use Jacob... <laughs> I think God can use you, and God can use me.
Now, we're at the point in the story where um, God is going to begin to remake Jacob from a trickster into somebody different. It's going to take about 20 years to remake him, 20 years of hard, hard difficulties to remake him. But at the end of 20 years, God is going to change his name from Jacob, which means the trickster and the cheater, to Israel, which means the prince of God. Now, as we pick up the story, Jacob is age 50, still living at home. Mom is still doing his laundry and microwaving his burrito at this point. He's a rich kid. He's a spoiled kid. He is literally a rich brat. That's the picture we have of Jacob. He's a schemer and a, and a cheater. And if God is going to fix him, there's two things that have to happen. Number one, he has to get him out of that dysfunctional home where mom and dad lie, trick, and cheat each other. God will bring him someplace else because no changes are happening there. And number two, God has to bring out one of his favorite tools that he uses in Jacob's life and he uses in our life to produce spiritual maturity. It's called adversity, hard times. Jacob, as we pick up the story, is signing up for his first day of classes in the school of adversity. In your outlines, uh, go ahead and look at me in Jake, Genesis chapter 28, verses 1 through 5. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padam Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother." Last week, we saw the real reason why Rebekah wanted Jacob to go away. She was concerned that Esau, her older son, would kill him. She had heard that Esau was planning on killing Jacob as soon as her husband died. But, you know, she's Rebekah. She's the, the lady who doesn't really tell all the truth. She's one of those manipulative ladies. You guys don't, you ladies don't know anybody like that, do you? who just sort of schemes and works things. So she comes to her husband and says, oh, I'm so concerned that um, Jacob is not going to marry, or he's going to marry one of these pagan women around here. We have to send him far away, like hundreds of miles away, to Laban, my brother. Now, we know that uh, there's some truth in this. There's also not some truth in this. The idea is that she's a manipulator. This is her character. Isaac, by the way, blesses Jacob. Isaac sends him on his way, 
And if you were around last week, I'm not going to get into the detail on this, but it's essentially the same blessing he got last week, except this time um, Isaac gives it to him willingly, not through trickery. What about Esau? What do we know about him? Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padim Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, quote, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he already had, Mahalah, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. And we covered a lot of this last week. Esau, uh, when you think about him, he reminds me of a guy who's dumber than a box of rocks. Really, honestly on this. Remember last week, Esau decided to marry two pagan wives. Two in the same ceremony at the same time. Remember that? Here come the brides, plural. And his parents are like, ugh, this is, this is terrible. This is crazy. These are not the women we wanted for our son. And so he picks this up and he says, you know what I'll do? I'll just add a third wife. I'll just pick up a daughter of Ishmael because they're sort of related to us. And the thing that gets me here is, if you remember from last week, Hagar and Ishmael were sent away from the family. Hagar was Abraham's girlfriend. It's like, this is the thing that they wanted to forget as a family. This is the thing they're not allowed to talk about at the dinner table. You know, grandpa's girlfriend and his sin. And so what does Esau do? Brings them back into the family. This is like pushing splinters under your parents' fingernails. It does not go over well. And I just want to talk to you in a real practical, simple application with this. And I'm going to talk specifically to those of you who are single right now. And I'm not trying to offend those of you who are married. But let me just talk really truthfully on this. There are some choices you make in life, some sinful choices you make that you cannot go back on and get a do-over on. Who you marry is one of those choices. Esau sort of realizes, you know, I made a really bad decision on marrying these two pagan wives, so I'm going to try and fix it and bring in a third wife. No! (laughs) You cannot fix it. Now, those of you who are single, let me tell you something. Be very careful who you date. Be very careful who you marry. Date and marry somebody who is passionate for Jesus Christ. Because there's a number of people who are in this room who will tell you that if you marry the wrong person, there is no going back on it. it is a, there are consequences that go with it for life. Just like there were consequences that went with Esau for life on this one. So what we learn from Esau is there are certain things we don't get a do-over on. 
Are we forgiven by God? Yes. But do we live with the consequences? Yes. So, be careful about who you choose to date and who you choose to marry. Oops, excuse me. Let me just get to this next part here. This is the part that I really want to study. Well, it's really exciting. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night, because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Jacob, um, he is running from home, and he literally at this point seems to have nothing besides the shirt on his back and the staff in his hand. Perhaps he also has the Superman lunchbox that his mother packed for him with milk money because he's one of those kind of guys. But when you get to Genesis chapter 35, verse 3, Jacob describes these days when he is running as the days of his distress. The picture we need to have at this point, he is fearing for his life. He knows Esau wants to kill him. I picture as he is running, he is getting out of town as fast fast as he can, to get as far away as he can, and he is constantly looking over his shoulders, hoping that Esau is not coming to hunt him down and to kill him. Now, I want you to notice, Jacob is doing the right thing. He is heading to Padam Aram. He is trying to get a godly wife, not pagan wives like his older brother, He's doing the right thing, but he's doing it really the hard way, isn't he? Because he was a guy who was a cheater, he was a deceiver, because he stole from his father, because he stole from his brother, when he leaves to go to Padam Aram, he leaves essentially penniless and fearing for his life. This is the picture we have. Going to the right place, but he's doing it the hard way. Remember who Jacob is. 
He is literally worth multiple millions of dollars. We learned last week that he has the, the family deathbed blessing, which makes him the sole heir of Isaac's fortune. But he's leaving with nothing. Because if we follow the story forward, when he gets to Laban, he ends up having to work for 14 years to get his wife, where it actually turns out to be two wives, unexpectedly. Why does he have to work for 14 years? Even though he is worth millions, he has nothing. He has no money for a dowry to buy her. Compare this to one generation earlier. When Abraham sent his servant to Padam Aram, Abraham's servant had all the cash and bought Rebekah for Isaac like that and left the next morning. Because, you know, Isaac wasn't living in a state of open rebellion against his father. But Jacob was living in a state of open rebellion. So he's doing the right thing, but he's doing it the hard way. In fact, what you're going to find is right here is the very beginning of Jacob going through 20 years of hard times and suffering that he could have all avoided if he hadn't been a cheater and a liar and a deceiver in the front end of his life. So here's the point. Will God get us where he wants us to be? Yes. Can we choose to make it a really rough road? Yes. That's the potent. It's the way it works for Jacob, and it's the way it works for each one of us. Ultimately, God is the one who has chosen you. God is the one who has adopted you into His family. Now, you could make this a really rough go-round, or you could make it a good go-round. It depends on the choices that you make. I like to think of it this way. You guys ever like to go fishing on a boat and you get one of those big fish on the line? You know, once you have that good fish and provided you have a good hook in it, it's just a matter of time until it comes on the boat. Now that fish can fight that line and pull that line all at once and wear itself out, but that fish is eventually coming in your boat. It's the same way with God. When He has His hand on our life and He has adopted us as His son and daughter, He's going to get us into His boat, but we can fight the line all day long and make the ride really rough for us. Now let's go into this Jacob's Ladder section. This is going to get very interesting. Jacob is essentially about two or three days out of where his hometown is. He's 50 to 70 miles away. The area he stops at, interestingly, as you start to study this, is sort of a no place. It's a wilderness area. But if you start to look around, it's actually a significant place. It's the same place Grandfather Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 8, built his first altar to God. Now, there's not much there. Jacob is camping. Jacob doesn't even have any supplies. He has to use a rock for a pillow. That is important. This is the multi-million dollar guy who has always slept with a down pillow. 
has nothing but a rock at this point. He is sleeping there, fearing for his life, running for his life, and God gives him a dream, a dream of a ladder that goes from heaven to earth. Let me explain a couple cool things. First of all, look at the timing on this dream. Jacob is about to enter into 20 years of painful exile. Jacob is a guy who is now leaving behind immense amount of wealth, incredible status as the favored son, the spoiled rich brat of the son of Isaac. And he will work for the next 20 years at a minimum wage job. You think that's going to start to change his heart and his life? And right before, he's in the beginning of this crisis, is when God comes to him and when God encourages him. Interestingly, there's another time in Jacob's life where God comes to him. It's in Genesis 32. It's when, not when Jacob is leaving the land and going into exile, but when Jacob is coming back into the land, fearful of facing his brother and losing his life. And here's the point. The two times when God breaks into Jacob's life are at his lowest moments and right before he enters into the darkest times of crisis. God often works this way. Folks, you will find that some of your closest times with God are in your lowest moments. Isn't that true? When God comes to you in a way like you've never come before. Also, you'll find that God comes before you and gives you some of your, your strongest, most exhilarating spiritual experiences right before you enter into a really hard time in your life. And God uses those times to help carry you through. Now let me look at the details of Jacob's ladder, and this is where it gets very interesting. We typically say this is Jacob's ladder. If you look in the footnotes in your Bible, you will see that it could also be translated as a stone staircase. Uh, the best translation of this is a stone staircase that goes from heaven to earth. In Jacob's time, they knew about stone staircases. From, so they went from earth to heaven. They were called ziggurats. Go ahead and put one up. That's what a ziggurat looks like. Now here is what makes this so important, and it clicks together. Have we seen a ziggurat earlier in Genesis? Thank you, Jeremy. Genesis chapter 11. You guys remember the Tower of Babel? Where man was trying to build a tower to reach all the way to God in the heavens. This is literally a man's attempt in Genesis chapter 11 is to build a stairway to heaven. This is like the Zed, Led Zeppelin stairway to heaven, okay? But here's what happened in Genesis chapter 11. A man tries to build a stairway to God for two reasons, for security and significance. And what God does is says, no way, you're not building a staircase to me, and he destroys it. 
But God brings the stairway to heaven back in Genesis chapter 28. And I want you to notice the contrast. The Tower of Babel was built by a whole bunch of men working together in a city. Jacob is all by himself in the middle of no place. Jacob didn't build this. This was God built. This was not built from earth to heaven. This was a stone staircase from heaven to earth. Of all people on the planet, who is probably the most undeserving at this point? Who is the guy who is the cheater, the deceiver, the bold-faced liar, the manipulator who is running for his life? who lies to his own father, who doesn't deserve God's grace and mercy. That's Jacob. And at the absolute lowest time in his life, when he is the absolute total scoundrel, God builds a staircase from heaven to earth for him. God gives him grace and mercy he doesn't deserve. It's the exact opposite of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel was man trying to reach God. This is God reaching a man who doesn't deserve it at all. This is the rich boy this is, who is a, has nothing left in his life, who only has a rock for a pillow. God pouring out his undeserved grace. Realize this, folks. The entire Bible is not a Tower of Babel story of us trying to reach God. The entire Bible is a story of Jacob's ladder. It is God reaching down to man when he least deserves it of all. Let's think about this. Adam, when he sinned, did Adam then reach up to God, or did God go hunting for him? God went hunting for him. Abraham, was he the one looking for God, or did God go choosing and looking for him? Paul, when he was on the Damascus Road, was he looking for God, or did God go looking for him when he least deserved it? when he was the persecutor of the faith. See, all other faiths in the world are just like the Tower of Babel. They are giving man a series of steps they have to do to try and climb their way to God. Think about Islam. Islam has the five pillars you have to do to climb up to God. Think about Buddhism. They have the seven-fold path, the seven steps you have to take to climb up to God. The Bible is the exact opposite. It is God reaching down to man in his most undeserving state when he is hopeless, when he is helpless, when he is running for his life, when he is sinful and least deserves it, it is God's grace extended to us. It is this chapter, Jacob's Ladder. Isn't that pretty cool? I think it's really cool. Now, the staircase has angels on it. 
Uh, what is the purpose of angels? Let me just tell you. As you look through the Bible, angels have a purpose. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 says that they are sent by God to protect and care for us. Psalm 91, verse 11 says that angels are sent by God to protect and guard us. Jacob is about to go into the 20 most difficult years of his life where he is out of the promised land and he is going to feel that he is really, really far from God. But he is not far from God because God has reached down to him and God has sent his angels to watch out and protect him. I mean, think about what he's about ready to go through. He's going to work for seven years for what he thinks is his wife and then on his wedding night, his boss slips the ugly woman in the chamber to him, and he makes love to the wrong woman. I mean, that's bad news. Then works another seven years to get the wife he originally wanted, and the whole time his boss just keeps changing his wages so he can't make a nest egg. I mean, this is really tough stuff, and it's going to feel for him like life is totally out of control. But he goes back to this moment that God is watching out for him, and God is following him. And God has actually sent his angels to protect and care for him in this really dark time in his life. And some of you can completely connect to this because you feel like this morning that you are in one of those exile seasons of your life where things are really hard and you feel like God is far away. Well, the thing you need to remember is that God is watching out for you. God cares about you. And the Bible says that God says His angels to protect and look over you. You are not alone. The story continues. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar. And he poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and the stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Jacob gets up, pretty amazed. I didn't expect to get this dream. I didn't expect to get this vision. He says, I'm going to name this place, calls it Bethel, which, by the way, in Hebrew, literally means house of God. Beth means house. El means God. And he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take this stone that I used as my pillow. I'm going to set it straight up, and I'm going to pour oil on top of it. And I remember... Reading that going, okay, why did you do that? Like, what's the purpose of setting a stone up and pouring oil on it? Let me help you understand. How many of you guys like old hymns? Okay, I like old hymns. And I like old hymns because they have rich theology in them. But one of the things I don't like about old hymns is sometimes they have some really screwy language in them that nobody seems to understand. When I grew up, one of the things we always, one of the hymns we always sung had in this, this line in it that said, um, I raise my Ebenezer. And I remember thinking to myself, 
Like, who is Ebenezer? Like, you know, is he dead or something? How do we raise him? And then I started to think, well, maybe an Ebenezer's not an old man. Maybe an Ebenezer's like a part of my body, like my nose. And I realized, no, that's the Ebenezer. So, you know, like what part of my body is the Ebenezer that I'm supposed to raise? I just don't get it. So I remember asking people around the church, we just sung, let us raise our Ebenezer. But I'm like, what is the Ebenezer? And they don't know what it is either. But then we kept singing it, which made absolutely no sense to me because we're raising the Ebenezer. We don't know what it is. Let me explain what an Ebenezer is. An Ebenezer is a stone of remembrance. It is a monument. It is a memorial. What Jacob does is this is such an important time in his life that he never wants to forget it. He sets this stone up so he could go back to the exact same place and remember that spiritually significant moment in his life where God appeared to him in this dream. Here's my simple application for you. Have you raised any Ebenezer's? Do you have any memorial markers that you have set up in your life that remind you about spiritual high points that you have gone through? It's important to have them because it's so easy to forget what God has done. Let me give you some examples. Uh, one of the things I have, it's not technically an Ebenezer in the sense that Ebenezer is technically a stone, but I keep a journal. And if there's important things that God has taught me, I write it down. Now, I don't keep my journal every day, but I keep that so I can look back on it and see what God has been doing in my life so I don't forget. One of the things that we do at our, our home is we have a Thanksgiving journal. And every Thanksgiving, after we eat the turkey, we go around as a family and we say the things that we are thankful for. We, say, remind, we talk about things that God has done in our life and we write it down. And then we look at like previous year's entries to see how God has been faithful over time. It's a memorial marker in us. Memorial markers don't have to be things that you just write down. Memorial markers can actually be places that are significant to you. When my kids were really young, uh, I brought them to a place in upstate New York. Uh, in Iowa, we go to a camp called Hidden Acres. I'm an East Coast boy. I went to a boys' camp called Deerfoot Lodge growing up. It was a Christian boys' camp. And... Uh, they used to always ask, does anybody want to be baptized? And I was in junior high, and they asked that when I was in the two-week camp, and I said, yes, I want to be baptized. And I brought my boys, after they were born, when they were young, I brought them to the exact same location, the exact same lake, and I said to them, right here, when I was a junior high student is when I went public with my faith in front of all my friends. It says that it is not the faith of my parents. It is my faith that I choose to love Jesus Christ. And whenever I see that picture, whenever I see that place, it reminds me that what God began in my life, He'll be faithful to complete in my life. Let me show you what that looked like. Right there. That's the lake where the camp is right in front of the docks on the beach. That's where I was baptized. 
Whenever I see that, it's a memorial marker for me. Now, here's a little challenge for you. This summer, we're going to have a baptism, and our summer baptisms are in the lake. Have you been baptized? Have you had a chance to go public with your faith in Jesus Christ? So every time you go back to that spot in the lake, you can say, right there, at Pike's Point, that's where I went public with my faith of Jesus Christ. And you can bring your kids back there and tell them because that is like a little Ebenezer in your faith and in your life. Let me give you another uh, example. I have, some of you may not realize this, I, have, I do have paperback books in my office. <laughs> I still use them. Uh, right behind me, I have a section of Bibles. Bibles that I've had over my life. Some Bibles that are back into the 70s <laughs> that were given to me. And I have one Bible uh, I pulled out just for this sermon. It uh, was given to me by my mom. In fact, my, as you know, my mom's passed away, but she wrote the dedication in the front of it and dated it in 1981 and the prayer for me in the front of it. And she is dead and gone now. But I open that Bible and I look through it and I see the highlights in it. And I see the notes I wrote as a seventh grader in that Bible. And I'm reminded, God, you, it sort of brings you right back to that moment when you read it, you know? God, you were faithful in my life then and you'll continue to be faithful in my life now. It's like a little Ebenezer, a little memorial of remembrance. Like, here's my challenge to you. Raise an Ebenezer. And that may not be a literal stone monument, but what do you have in your life that memorializes and brings you back to those significant spiritual times in your life? Have those. Keep those. Save those. It's really important for your walk with God. Now, we've talked all Old Testament, but you know what? I love Jesus, and so we've got to bring Jesus in as we wrap this up. <laughs> the neat part about Genesis chapter 28, Stairway to Heaven, is that it's not actually all fulfilled in Genesis. It actually finds its fulfillment in John chapter 1, verse 51. And it's all about Jesus. Let me read this to you. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. By the way, you can catch this. Who is the deceiving Israelite? Jacob, right? Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Culturally, this under the fig tree is an expression. When people would go out in the woods and study and memorize and read God's Word, it was a term to go under a fig tree in this culture. So he was reading the Scriptures. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, and here's where it gets interesting, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. 
What passage do you think Nathaniel was reading? Genesis 28. The story of God making a way to reach an undeserving and lost man. And Jesus says, you know who that was all about? It's about me. I am the stairway to heaven. I am the stairway that Jacob saw. It's not Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin's song, by the way, Stairway to Heaven, is about God making a way to man. It's about the Tower of Babel. But God's stairway to heaven is Jesus when He reached down to us when we least deserve it, deserved it of all. Now, let me just give you four quick things to take away as I wrap up. Number one, God will get us where He wants us to go, but we can choose the roughness of the ride getting there, can't we? Number two, Jesus is the stairway to heaven. The Bible is the story of God seeking us when we least deserve it. Babel is the story of man seeking God through work and efforts that never make it. Number three, just as God had His angels watching over Jacob in the exile years of his life, He has His angels watching over us in the exile years of our life. Number four, raise an Ebenezer. Create memorials to help you remember important times in your walk with God. Jesus is the stairway to heaven. Now, here's what I want to challenge you are. Some of you are here this morning, and you are in the same situation as Jacob. Some of you are here, and your life is falling apart. Your world is falling apart. God is seeking you. The reason you are here this morning is because God has built a staircase from heaven to earth because He loves you, and His name is Jesus Christ. And God is calling you this morning to repent of your sins and to trust in Jesus Christ, and He promises He will make you into a completely new person, not because we deserve it, but because we don't deserve it at all. If you're in one of those Jacob moments this morning, I challenge you to trust in Jesus. But I don't just challenge you to do that. Talk to me. Talk to me afterwards so I can pray for you because Jesus is the stairway to heaven. Dear Jesus, we come before you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your undeserved grace and favor to Jacob in the lowest parts of his life. And if you, Jesus, can extend your love to Jacob, we know you can extend your love to us. And we don't deserve it at all. We worship you and praise you for that. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.